Hey, if you'll turn in your Bibles or on your phone to Acts chapter 17, Jesus famously said to a group of non-believers, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now by that, he meant that believing the truth of the gospel will set you free from bondage to sin. But when I was a youth pastor many years ago, I would sometimes modify that to arrest the teen's attention, saying that you will know the truth and the truth will make you odd. That is, if you are a believer, if you've embraced the gospel, then it has, yes, freed you from bondage to sin, but it also makes you different from those around you. And I emphasize that because of something else that Jesus said. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for his first followers and then later for those who would believe their message. That would be, that would be us. And he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctify means to set apart. And it's saying that people who believe the truth will be set apart. They'll be different, sometimes considered odd. Now, that difference is not to come because we go out of our way to be weird, to look weird, to talk weird, to act weird. The second century letter to Diognetus was written as a defense of early Christians against its detractors. And that letter said this, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot is cast, and they follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else, and they have children. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, lives they transcend the laws. Despite that, though, the presence of Christians with non-Christians often results in some form of hostility and antagonism. And so that letter to Diognetus goes on. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. Cursed, yet they bless. Insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. One reaction to the Christian difference is opposition due to sinful antagonism, but another is bewilderment due to ignorance, ignorance of what we believe and why. As early as 1970, the late Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer said that the United States, along with continental Europe, was already post-Christian. That is, fewer and fewer people were viewing life through the lens of a Christian worldview. And today, surveys of religious affiliation show that the fastest growing category is none. Not N-U-N, like someone who lives in a convent, but N-O-N-E, as in no religious connection. 
people that may have no religious, including Christian background, on which we can draw then when we speak to them. And so we seek to inform them, but having done so, now that they know, they may well reject and become hostile. Hostile or ignorant, but when you address the ignorance, they become hostile. Living as a Christian ain't easy. And really, it never never has been. We think that our day is unique, but that letter to Diognetus in the second century goes back 1900 years. And even in our own country, although the celebration of wickedness is more open than in the past, make no mistake, it's not new. On my very first day, very first class at the University of Michigan, in a room with perhaps 250 students, the first thing out of the professor's mouth was to ask us to do something vulgar that I won't even mention. In fact, I hesitated to say that because now your minds are wondering, what was it they... Thankfully, no one did, but he used that to make his point, which was that we're too controlled and restricted by what other people think. We should be free from the mores of society and what others expect. And I admit, I did not like that guy. He lied to the class about a law proposed at that time in Congress called the Family Protection Act, saying it would outlaw premarital sex. Now, he figured none of us knew what that law said, and we had very little way to check back in those days because it was long before a thing called the Internet. But it happened that I had interned the summer before at a United States senator's office, and I had a hard copy of that law with me. And I raised my hand and I said he could have my copy and I asked him to please show us where it says that. He said he would when he had time, but he never did because it wasn't there. I asked about it several times. He finally had to admit that he um, misspoke. Christianity versus everybody. And it can feel like Christians versus everybody and that can be hard and intimidating. How do you get the courage to speak up? And I needed to know in that setting because I had to speak up often and I'm not setting myself up here as a fearless warrior for truth in my late teens and early 20s or even now for that matter. The truth is there were times when I was too afraid to speak. Other times that I did speak up but got crushed, making it all the more difficult the next time. And so apologetics and evangelism can be daunting, especially when engaging one who is highly intelligent and or aggressively opposed. We're tempted to remain silent and avoid the possibility of being humiliated. Now, apologetics, many of you may know, does not have to do with apologizing, saying I'm sorry for what I believe, but quite the opposite. The New Testament was written in Greek and has been translated for us into English, and the Greek word apologia in the Bible means defense. And so apologetics is defending what you believe. In our case, our Christian beliefs, defending them against opposition, even at times, going on offense against contrary beliefs. Evangelism is giving the gospel, but there are times, depending on with whom you're speaking, you may need to engage in apologetics in order to give the gospel because you may need to deal with some misunderstandings or objections before the gospel can even be understood. So if we are going to be evangelistic people, we are, at least at times, going to need to engage in apologetics. But there's the ever-present fear factor. Here's the good news for us. The Christian always 
has the upper hand in any encounter. What helped me back then and helps me now, even when I'm speaking with someone more intelligent or articulate than me, is that I've come to realize that a Christian knows an unbeliever better than he knows himself. You know more about him than he knows about himself on three most important and foundational issues. The first is this. The Bible teaches that people know God. People know God. And there are some, a spot for notes for this message in the notebook that you received on the way in. People know God. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All people know that God is and know some things about him from creation itself. And this makes them without excuse for failing to account for God in their thinking and living. Without excuse is the negative form in Greek of that word apologia, which means defense. So when it says without excuse, it means literally without a defense to defend themselves. And that's why the Bible says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. You see, in the Bible, foolishness is not ignorance. Ignorance just means not knowing. All of us are ignorant of some things. Many of us are ignorant of a lot of things. But foolishness is failure to apply what we do know. And unbelievers fail in that, and thus the Bible calls them fools, because they do know about God, and they know that they are accountable to God. So you know that all people know God, but you also know this, according to the Bible. People don't want to know God. And so that same passage, Romans 1, says they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So the Bible teaches that unbelievers suffer from something like repressed memories of God. They don't want to think about him as he is, and so they mold him in their own image or refuse to think or talk about him at all. And that is why you are told that in polite company, the two subjects you don't talk about are religion and, and politics. And when before I was a pastor, I worked for 20 years as a computer consultant. And when I would go into work on Monday after the weekend, people would come in and they were very happy to tell you about every aspect of what they did over the weekend and all of its salacious detail. But when the subject came to their creator and talking about God, that's off limits. You can't do that because we don't want to. We don't want to think about it in our natural sinful state. And so people know God. They don't want to think about God. And as a result, the Bible teaches people live foolishly. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools, the Bible says. Because they fail to account for their creator and their thinking, they live contrary to how they were made. The same chapter in Romans 1 says that an obvious example of this foolish living is seen in homosexuality, which distorts God's natural design. This is so clear that even the average non-Christian person knows that men and women are male and female, that they are biologically different, that sex and gender are not interchangeable, and many resent the notion that their daughter might have to share a locker room with someone who was male at the end of last week but claims to be female on Monday. And yet without God as the standard, they really have no basis upon which to object. Scripture addresses the fear factor by giving us these, these truths that people know God, that they don't want to know God, and so they live as they do, foolishly. 
And scripture gives those in order to guide and to motivate our apologetic and evangelistic interactions with others. But it also gives us these and more. It gives us an example, a model of someone actually doing this, putting it into practice. And that someone is the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans 1, and then a few years later had put those principles, uh, a few years earlier, I should say, had put those principles into practice when he arrived in Athens, Greece, the philosophical capital of the ancient world. And in Athens, Paul is presenting the gospel to people that are much like those in our day, with little or no background in Christianity or background in the Bible. In prior chapters in the book of Acts, he often presented Christ in Jewish synagogues with people who had the Old Testament scriptures, and so Paul could assume that they knew something of the God of the Bible. But in Athens, he can make no such assumption, so much so that the second century church father, Tertullian, famously posed the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? It's asking in that question about the proper relationship between Athens, the prime example of secular learning, and Jerusalem, the symbol of Christian commitment and thought. How does the proclamation of the church relate to the teaching of the Philosophical Academy? What we're going to see in this passage from Acts chapter 17, in the words of the late and great Christian apologist Greg Bonson, is that Paul was an expert at suiting his approach to each unique challenge. And so the manner in which he confronted the Athenian unbelievers, who did not profess submission to the Old Testament scriptures, like most unbelievers in our own culture, will be noteworthy for us. We're going to see that the manner in which the gospel was presented was different, but the message was and always must be the same. And so I've titled the message at the top of the outline in your notebook, The Gospel for Jerusalem and also for Athens. And please note in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 21, all the Athenians and foreigners lived, uh, who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So by the time Paul arrived in the city of Athens, the failure of the major philosophical schools was apparent and people were looking for satisfaction in other forms of thought. And so in that environment, one very much like our own, how does Paul present the gospel? And I say in the outline, in your notebook, our message involves confrontation with truth. Now, when I say confrontation, I don't mean an encounter that's necessarily hostile. We want to present ourselves and our message in a kind and pleasant way. Our demeanor should never be the reason for someone's rejection. In fact, in an evangelistic context, this is what Paul says elsewhere. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So confrontation does not mean hostility, but rather presenting the truth to someone who does not currently embrace it. It includes truth they don't currently accept, so they're being confronted lovingly but directly with who God is, who they are, and the estrangement that exists between the two. But if the encounter is hostile, it should be because of their reaction, not because of our presentation. Our message involves confrontation with the truth, and I say in your outline, against worldly expressions. Worldly expressions. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. So he's waiting in Athens for his associates, Timothy and Silas, to join him and to continue 
in their missionary activity. But as he waits, verse 16 goes on to say, he's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul saw beyond the aesthetic beauty of the city. He didn't see it as a tourist attraction. Instead, he saw the truth he would later write about in Romans 1, that people are inherently religious because they are made to know God. People were made to worship, and if they do not worship God, they will worship someone or something else. In Athens, the idolatrous worship was overtly religious. But idolatry need not be religious, since idolatry is really making anyone or anything more important than God. And that's why Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Colossians 3, 5 says that greed is an example of idolatry. It's because prioritizing material things puts self-interest and things in the place of God. Now notice that I say worldly expressions, not cultural, because not all culture is bad. Worldliness is a subset of culture. It's that portion of a culture's language, fashion, art, media, and customs that express fallen values. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. In Athens, those fallen values were overtly religious, but they may be secular idols. Materialism, hedonism, humanism, and on it goes, are all philosophies that are unconsciously or uncritically pursued by most people every day, but without the religious trappings. And the one common feature of all idolatries, no matter what their form, is that they exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of the creature. And thereby our God is robbed of that which is rightfully his exclusive worship. And so Paul sees that and he has a visceral reaction to what he saw. Verse 16 says he was greatly distressed. The Greek word translated greatly distressed is the same Greek word that's used to describe God's anger at Mount Sinai. We get our English word paroxysm from it, a, a seizure. Paul sees this and in effect he has a seizure at what he saw. And so we need to ask ourselves then, as would-be evangelists and apologists, are we being absorbed by the culture or are we being provoked to action by its idolatry? If you do not consciously adopt your values from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb them from the world. If you don't consciously adopt your values from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb them from the world. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, are you distressed? Are you provoked to action by what you see? Or do we feel quite at home? The truth is we're surrounded by cults and isms and temples and apostasy and heresy and immorality. And all of this amounts to a detraction from the praise of the true and living God. And it ought to provoke us to action as it did for Paul. An apologetic and evangelistic encounter begins by seeing what's wrong and then confronting it with truth. And it's for that reason that we seek to go to the culture in order to give the gospel and confront what has been made wrong by the entrance of sin into God's good world. And so we confront the truth against worldly expressions, and I say in your outline, against worldly assumptions. Verse 17 of Acts 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. 
Now that verse starts with so or therefore, and it connects what follows with what precedes. So as a result of this reaction, Paul took action. And he reasoned. Doesn't mean he said, let's compare notes to see if we can teach each other something. Paul had already determined that they had nothing to offer. He was not there to exchange ideas, but to proclaim truth. Surely he would listen and no doubt entertain questions, but remember, he knows more about them than they know about themselves, and so he is aimed to educate them. We have no reason to believe that Paul was anything but cordial in his presentation, but as so often happens, the hearers react negatively, and we'll see that negative reaction in just a moment. But notice that Paul didn't start just smashing their, their physical idols. Paul didn't start a movement and says, we need to establish Christian nationalism in Greece. You see, there are a lot of answers being proffered today about what we do about an increasingly decadent society that's increasingly hostile to Christianity. Please hear this. You do not need a Christian culture to carry out Christian ministry. Christian ministry can and always has been carried out in any kind of culture. I want to see a culture that acknowledges God, to be sure, but I don't need it in order to carry out ministry, and Paul didn't need it in Athens, Greece. Verse 18 says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Epicurus and Zeno, Zeno the founder of Stoicism, lived about 400 years before Paul. Epicurus taught that pleasure was the chief goal of life. And Zeno emphasized man's rational abilities and individual self-sufficiency. Their philosophies live on and are pursued today, even by people who've never heard of either of them. The average person is not familiar with the origin of such phrases as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or you only go around once. But these are the modern version of Epicureanism. And when you hear someone say, hey, stuff happens, they're giving nothing more than a contemporary version of Stoicism. Now, I said that they reacted negatively. I say that because of what's said next in verse 18. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, babbler is a word originally used of birds picking up grain, then of scrap collectors searching for junk, then extended to those who snapped up ideas of others and peddled them as their own without understanding them, and finally to someone who was good for nothing. That's what they're saying about the Apostle Paul. Verse 18, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Notice foreign gods, it's, it's plural. Apparently they thought he was advocating two new gods, one male and one female, Jesus and Anastasia, because anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection, and it's written in the uh, female form in, in Greek. And so as a result of that, Paul is, in effect, arrested. Verse 19 says that they took him. They took him means that they arrested him. This phrase in the book of Acts is more often than not used in the sense of arresting someone. Verse 19, then they, they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus is the hill of Ares. In Latin, it's Mars Hill. So you've heard it. Some of your translations may say that. And this was the place where the officials of the city who governed in matters of religion and morals would meet. And they said to him, verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. So he's hauled in for an informal hearing to determine whether formal charges should be brought for introducing new gods. Socrates had been arrested and executed for the same reason over 400 years earlier. So Paul had confronted with truth against worldly idolatrous expressions and worldly philosophical assumption, and then he made a proclamation, I say in your outline, of authority. Very often we take the approach that we need to explain or defend God. I'm happy to answer questions people have about God, as all of us should be. But as uh, we have seen and will see again, God has made himself known to his creatures and we are responsible to him. And it's not God who needs to defend himself or to be defended. God does not need a defense before people. People need a defense before God. C.S. Lewis said in his book, God in the Dock, where dock refers to the witness seat in a courtroom. He said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is the man on the bench, the man is on the bench, and God is in the dock. Our evangelism is not a, a dialogue in which the unbeliever stands, friends, in judgment of God. Rather, we, we have a message from a king and we're heralding it. So the message and method are authoritative. Our message involves this proclamation of authority showing a few things. I say in the outline that humanity is dependent on God. And this passage teaches us that man is dependent on God for a few things. One is revelation. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul tells them respectfully but directly, you're clueless. The reason you don't understand the significance of the resurrection is that every event requires an interpretation of the event. And the proper interpretation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can only be gained from the standpoint of a biblical worldview. Starting from yourself and attempting to reason your way to God will be futile. You require something outside yourself. The only cure for your ignorance is the truth of Scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I will not seek to reason with you from your worldview. Rather, I proclaim the truth to you. That word proclaim refers to a solemn declaration that's made with authority. Friends, we need to have firmly in mind that what matters is not our verdict regarding the evidence. What matters is God's verdict regarding us. And so man is dependent on God for revelation, but also for sustenance. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Notice that Paul's message starts with God. How can he do that? Well, it's because of what we saw earlier. He knows that people know God. Men understand intuitively that 
They have a creator and they are creatures of this creator. That's what Romans 1 tells us. They understand that and they understand that the creator is the owner. So therefore we can't have a creator because we don't want an owner. So evolution has been called the long war against God because people understand that the potter does have the authority over the clay. People want a God who can be there when they need him and when they beckon, but we want a God that is not to God. We want a God that we can handle and control. And therefore there's the constant debates, even among professing Christians about the sovereignty of God. But the true and living God is independent. He is independent of space, verse 24. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He's independent of his creatures, verse 25. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You see, friends, that God did not create the world because he was needy. God has never needed us. We need him. God was never, there was never a time that God was lonely. For all eternity, there has been the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so God is independent of space, and he's independent of any need of his creatures. And he providentially controls the affairs of men. Verse 26, from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What it's saying is before you were born, Long before one of your parents swiped right, God determined when and where you would be born and live. And that sets people on their heels. When you say God has been active before you ever came around, and God has controlled affairs of your lives before you ever had any choice in the matter. Our message involves proclamation of authority showing that humanity is dependent on God and that humanity is accountable to God. Accountable to God. You can write it down though, it's official, it's on the screen. Humanity is accountable to God. And accountable to God to, to seek Him. God's a desire is that people seek Him. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. But God's verdict is that people are clueless, ignorant, left to themselves. They suppress the truth that he, he gives them, but also culpable because they're willfully ignorant. As we saw back in, in Romans 1, God has, has shown it to them. And now in Paul's presentation before the Athenian philosophers, he drives that home to them as well by, in verse 28, quoting some of their own philosophers. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And you see that that's in quotation marks. And some, as some of your own poets have said, again in quotation marks, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Verse 28 has quotations from two Greek poets, Epimenides and Aratus. Some of your own fill-in-the-blank clueless, clueless poets have said, Paul is saying, but you're not only ignorant, you're not only clueless, but you are culpable for that ignorance because it is an active rejection. Romans chapter one again, although they knew God, 
They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Despite the fact that God has showed it to him, knowing literally Romans 1.21 says, although they knew, and in Greek it has the article, although they knew the God, they reject him and as we saw earlier, do not want to think about him. You see, people know God. You see it as in this case in their poetry, but we hear it in other ways that people assume God but fail to acknowledge him. When people speak of absolute right and wrong, those can only be true in relation to God. When people demand justice, they are identifying wrong, but very often do not acknowledge God as the standard of right. When people use logic to argue against God, they're using a tool that can only exist because of God. So we often get the wrong idea that people are deprived rather than depraved. That people are, are neutral, just waiting for more information in order to render a decision. But the Bible teaches that all people have rendered a decision. They've all rejected the truth they have, truth that should lead them to seek God, but because of sinfulness, because of depravity, it causes them to construct gods to their own liking. So Paul has moved from the God they know to their rejection of God. People know God, but people don't want to know God. And people are accountable to seek God. And failing to do that, they are accountable to repent. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For because he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him. Jesus from the dead. God overlooked human ignorance, revealed in idol-making. That is, he was patient. Even though all men are under God's wrath and are without excuse because they have natural revelation in creation, God has been patient. And through time, the Gentiles were responsible for the general revelation that was given to them. Now, with the worldwide proclamation of the gospel, they're also responsible to special revelation. That response is to obey God's command to repent of their sins, including intellectual sin. Did you all know that sin is not just what people do, but sin is failing to think God's thoughts after him. There is such a thing as intellectual sin. And verse 30 calls for repentance. Verse 34 says that some believe, and when someone is converted, both of those come together, repentance and faith, or repentance and belief. And so Paul says, you want to know the meaning of the resurrection, as they had asked about earlier? He's saying in verse 31, it vindicated the claims of your judge. And it also identifies the true and living God whom you are responsible to seek. And that's why Jesus makes this exclusive claim that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so our message involves confrontation with the truth, proclaiming a proclamation with authority, and then lastly, reliance on sovereignty. You see, when you do this, when I do this, when we do this, the truth is most people will reject the truth. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So you see, none of that group are receiving. None of that group are bowing. They're still, re, they're still rejecting. And most 
do in fact reject the truth. Jesus said, wide is the gate, broad the road that leads to destruction. Many, many enter through it. Small the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so Paul has made the message clear enough that people can reject it. And when we give the message of Christ, we have to make it clear enough that it can be rejected. Sometimes we present it as, hey, you've got this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Don't you want that? If you do, just squeeze my hand and I'll pray a prayer. And if you agree with it, say amen at the end. Well, who's going to reject that? But Paul presented it clearly enough that it, that it could be rejected. Hear this. If everybody likes it, you're not preaching truth. So when people reject, it does not mean you fail. So what do we do? We confront lovingly with the truth. We proclaim with authority. And then we rely on the Lord of the harvest. Because thanks be to God, some people will believe. Verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. When Paul and Barnabas began preaching to Gentiles, Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 tells us that, quote, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. When Paul arrived in the city of Corinth, he did so with what Luke described as fear and trembling, but the Lord appeared to him and he said, do not be afraid, Paul, but speak and hold not your peace, for I am with you and I have many people in this city. God has people in Troy. God has people where our church is in Trenton. God has people in your town, and our job is to find out who they are. And so I encourage you this week, ask a friend if you may present the Christian gospel in five minutes and then, and then discuss it if they have questions. Here it is as we close. The one living and true God made the universe and so owns and has authority over all that is in it, including you. This God is holy and just, and it's from him and because of him that all people have a sense of justice, that wrong must be punished. But we ourselves have done wrong by failing to be and think and talk and act as God made us to. That wrong must be punished because God is just, but in his mercy, God has provided a way for us to be related to him in Jesus Christ. God came to earth to live the life that we were to live, and he died the death that we deserve. God's justice was poured out on him instead of us. He requires you to express belief in what Jesus Christ has done for you and to show it by turning from living for yourself to living for him. That's it in a minute. But there's a lot to it, right? And there may be many questions and many objections. If you're in a synagogue like Paul often was, as, or in our case, with someone familiar with the Bible, you may not need to spend a lot of time with God as the creator and owner and just can go directly to we ourselves have done wrong by failing to be and think and talk and act like God. Greg Bonson said this, the apostle understood his audience at Athens. They would have needed to learn of God as the creator of his divine retribution against sin before the message of grace could have meaning. Thus, the scope of Paul's theological discussion would necessarily be broader, broader than that normally found in his epistles to Christian churches. It can be and has been by many reduced to four crucial elements, and they are these. You present God as he is. You present humanity as, as it is in its plight because of sin. You present Christ as the solution to that, and then you call for the response of faith 
and repentance, but it begins with God and his holiness, moves to us and our need for Christ. Here's your take-home truth. The character of God must shape our presentation of the gospel. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for this time and these moments to open your word and be instructed by the example of your servant, Paul. We thank you for the times that you have chosen by your sovereign hand to have us live in your world and where you have placed us within that world. None of this is by accident. And so help each of us to embrace the moment, embrace the location, embrace the opportunity. And Lord, grant us a fearlessness, a a courage to give your truth because you have told us the truth about ourselves, but about those that we are lovingly seeking to confront with the truth, that they know you, they don't want to know you. And as a result, their lives are a mess. They live foolishly and we see the evidence, the consequences then of sin for which Jesus Christ is the only solution. O Lord of the harvest, we ask you to move upon hearts in our spheres of influence. Use us as your tools to draw them to yourself for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.